Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. Glad that you joined us on this episode. We're going to be taking a look back at uh, some moments uh, that we've had with um, some of our guests that I think demonstrate uh, kind of what we're about on this show. Um, I think the essence of this show is getting people on here who can tell you interesting stories about things that have happened to them or happened uh, in association with them uh, in the sport of boxing, uh, give you some insights. Um, and um, I think kind of enlighten you about the sport of boxing and what they've been about. There are lots of shows that concentrate more on uh, specifically making news or having controversy, and we will occasionally do that on this show. But I think the mission statement here is we want you to enjoy the people that you uh, get to see on this show. And we will show you some of those great stories uh, that they had to tell us um, as we move on with this show. But the other thing that we want to do on this particular one, I've gotten so many questions from you, uh, and we can't always get to all of them. On this show, we're going to try to get to as many as we can. Uh, and uh, you send me your questions uh, at Al Bernstein on Twitter, and uh, we're going to share uh, as many of those as we can with you today. And to help me do that, my pal, Trip Mitchell. Hi, Trip. Al, and, uh, you know, our first question we'll get to in just a second, but it's about, it has to do with uh, your thoughts on Howard Cosell. Do you think Howard will go down as one of the most controversial announcers in the history of boxing because of his timing and, and the fact that the 60s and 70s were just such a great time? Oh, yeah. Well, Howard is a lightning rod, you know, uh, in many, many ways, uh, uh because for really, and not just in boxing, I think with all the sports that he did, uh, I, you know, he was the father of <laughs> some of the things in sports casting today that, and in fact, some of the things that this question is going to deal with, um, he kind of created a, a certain way of sports casting that changed the business. Yeah, and uh, I know you're not a fan of some of the uh, hyper, you know, where basically an announcer is bigger than a sport. But, Al, in your case, you've always tried to be understated, but Howard was bigger than the sporting events that he No, covered. he was for sure. And, and some of that was good and some of it wasn't. Let's get to the first question. This comes from Kilpat. In 1983, you wrote this K, uh, column in KO. In the wake of Cosell quitting boxing, it would be very interesting to have you revisit your thoughts on the podcast from this column, and we'll read an excerpt here in just a second, with 38 years of experience. And to uh, quote you here, there are enough intriguing questions to be asked. Are we too opinionated? Do we seek to have an input beyond what is appropriate? Should we have any impact at all except to inform and enlighten viewers? Yeah, that column that I wrote was right after Cosell had left boxing. He uh, decided kind of mid-fight while he was doing the uh, Tex Cobb-Larry Holmes fight that he didn't want to do boxing anymore and literally kind of 
just stopped doing the broadcast. And Don Chevrier, who I later worked with uh, at uh, ESPN, had to kind of rush in to finish the broadcast, which is pretty extraordinary. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I can't imagine that happening today, but it did. And uh, it led me to those questions. Now, think of it, that was 1983. And those questions are ones that I think are reasonable ones to ask about our role as a sportscaster. How quaint when you now look back at me asking those questions in light of what we now see in sportscasting. Do you think, Tripp, is anybody asking those questions of themselves right now? Very few. No, we've got into this culture where you know, create controversy, do whatever you need to, to keep people on that, that channel or whatever digital channel you're on. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and, you know, I don't want to be too broad in painting the brush, but what you just said was essentially the case. I don't know if there's a lot of introspection among sportscasters about those questions. And I'll tell you, for me, I, I think to myself, and I, I don't know if this is a, a, some people might even say this is inappropriate uh, or that I would do this too much. But when I'm broadcasting a fight or I'm reporting on an event or when I'm doing a whether it's a podcast like this or a talk, a talk show uh, as we do here or when I did uh, talk radio on all sports. In the back of my mind always is if I was the person I'm talking about watching or listening to this show would I think it's fair? Now, of course, some, you know, it's hard to know what's fair when you, you know, people are talking about you if they're being even at all negative. But I think of that, you know, and so like in that story, you know, I asked the question about affecting careers. When you're doing boxing broadcasts, for instance, you know, the perception of how people fought sometimes is just as important as as whether they won or lost. And we as sportscasters can affect people's perceptions. So I just think all those questions are ones that you constantly should be asking yourself because, you know, uh, what you do has an impact. Well, the Will Rogers of the 1980s, Tex Cobb, had a great line, and I'll, I'll butcher it a little bit, but he basically said, if I cost Howard to quit doing boxing, maybe I should be a football player, and then he could quit doing football as well. <laughs> yeah, that's I right. Butchered yeah, it, but it was a great a lot thought. of some other sports as well. Well, you know, <laughs> one of the things about that about that um, that event too that's fascinating that fascinates me is that you know at the beginning the Tex Cobb Larry Holmes fight was one that let's be honest it was not that even a fight. However, Tex Cobb had had some important wins that got him the fight with Larry Holmes. It wasn't that he was just some lousy fighter that they threw in there. He had gotten several important wins that made the fight feasible. And at the beginning of the fight, you know, Howard Cosell knew what he was getting as well as during the fight. Uh, so I just thought it was a bit disingenuous to all of a sudden stop broadcasting in the middle of a, you know, a broadcast when you knew at the beginning that this was probably a fight that could have gone in the direction that it went in with Larry Holmes, you know, controlling things and uh, and dominating. And part of the problem with the fight was Larry Holmes was not a huge puncher and Tex Cobb was as tough as nails. So 
uh, it, round after round, Holmes was beating him up, but uh, the fight didn't get stopped. So, it's did you ever meet uh, Mr. Cosell in, in your travels? Yeah, you know, I've only I was only around Howard Cosell a couple of times, uh, at, very early in my career, and uh, nothing. We never had any uh, major exchanges. Uh, I was doing a. Uh, a fight in, uh, I was with Sal Marciano. We were doing a, uh, we went to ABC when I was at ESPN to do a, 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 a to retape a fight that was going to air on ABC shortly after they had bought ESPN. And I came out of the, uh, the, the booth with Sal and there was Howard Cosell. And ironically, Rune Arledge came down, which I thought was interesting. Uh, it's the only time I ever met Rune Arledge. And, uh, and, uh, we had a brief exchange, but nothing, nothing significant. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people that, uh, while I recognize the, uh, the impact that Howard Cosell had on sports, and uh, he was a brilliant man and a larger-than-life figure, I ver- I'm one of the people that is not on board with uh, all the trends he started in sportscasting. But, uh, but, you know, there's good and there's bad. You take the good with the bad with everybody. Well, and a nuanced person by far and away. Let's get to um, something that's going to be uh, you're going to have an impact on directly, and that's Joe Denunzio asked, "How do you see the Burchelt Valdez fight going?" Yeah, that's a fight that will be airing on uh, February twentieth. That'll uh, that'll be uh, uh, on uh, ESPN, and uh, the the top ranked folks are putting that one on, and it's a very good fight, uh, Miguel Burchelt and uh, Oscar Valdez, and it it it. It's a fight that is one of the fights coming up in the sport of boxing. I think like our fight in which we had uh, Angelo Leo and Stephen Fulton Jr. And they created a terrific 12-round fight. That's kind of what I think. And we had that one on Showtime. That's kind of what I think this one could be. Uh, Oscar Valdez moving up from uh, featherweight to go to super featherweight to take on the champion, Miguel Burchelt, for uh, Valdez. Uh, you know, a fighter who is very exciting, has some defensive issues. He's been working with uh, Eddie Reynoso, uh, the, who also trains Canelo Alvarez and trains some other top boxers, to try and fix some of his defensive problems while still allowing him to be aggressive as a fighter. Uh, Valdez is the underdog in this fight. He's had some troubles in recent fights, even though he's still undefeated and has never lost. Uh, he had his jaw broken against Scott Quigg in a, a defense of his uh, featherweight title uh, in which he won. And so he comes into the fight a decided underdog, but definitely a live underdog. As for Miguel Burchelt, uh, a 29-year-old who is as exciting as you can possibly be as a fighter, he is involved in, in wildly exciting fights. And uh, this will be the seventh title defense he'll have uh, of his um super featherweight crown. Uh, he is one of the people that I think rightfully is thought of as a potential uh, superstar in the sport of boxing. If he can get the right matches and and get in against the right people and they can create uh, some big fights for him uh, because there are some great fighters down in, in that around those weight classes. Uh, I think he can uh, he can be very special in the sport in the next several years. And uh, and he's going to have all his hands full with Valdez for sure. 
Okay. And we've got another uh, kind of an inside TV question, but this is, is very interesting coming from Devin Johnson. Without throwing anyone under the bus, which, as you've said, is not what we do here, <laughs> do networks favor biased views slash commentary for the house fighter? I've seen it happen on other networks, and I'm curious if this is suggested. Well, it's an interesting question, and it is one that is often debated and often talked about. I can only speak to my own personal experiences and also offer some thoughts on why it may occur when it seems to occur. First of all, from my own experiences, uh, I can go back to my days at ESPN uh, on those broadcasts. There wasn't some meeting where you'd sit around and, and, and of course, the show that I was on was called Top Rank Boxing, even though they didn't run the show, which was a misnomer. ESPN ran the show, but Top Rank was the promoter that did all the shows. So I didn't work for Top Rank. I didn't work for the promoter. And they didn't run the shows, and they didn't control the editorial content on the show. But nonetheless, it had their name on it. I can honestly say that nobody at the network or anyone related to Top Rank made efforts to uh, influence how we would announce uh, fights. Uh, There there may have been times when uh, somebody didn't like what I said or thought, gee, I wish you'd have done this or you'd have done that. But honestly, it was never anything that that made its way to me or was thought of. Uh, At Showtime, where I've been for uh, now many years, I can say the same thing. I have there. Are, I've gone through several regimes at Showtime. Uh, several uh, men at the top. Uh, several groups that are, have run the sports programming, and I've never had people call, say to me, "Oh, this is how we should approach this fight," and this we should be highlighting this guy more and highlighting that. I know some people will say, "Will will think that the, you know will, that it's naive to even say that to them," but it's a fact. Um, you talk about different things that could happen in the fight. You talk about different people that might end up on that network again. And you talk about them being on that network again, not because you want them to win and be on that network, only because what is possible? Like, what's a fight we might talk about if, when we get to the end of this fight that is possible? And you don't do it for just one of the fighters. I don't care if there is a quote A by side and a B side. You do it for both of the fighters. And and one of the things I take pride in for the broadcast I'm on is we talk about both fighters. We we make a conscious effort to talk about both of them. I have never, ever, ever sat down to do a boxing match in which I thought one fighter was more important than the other, ever, in, in 40 years. I've never done it. I'm never going to do it. As far as I'm concerned, both fighters are as important. Clearly, sometimes somebody's a huge favorite <laughs> and they're a big name. I mean, I'm not naive and I'm not blind. But my mission is to make sure that I'm not calling that fight that way. Now, I will tell you how you can tell if somebody has a subconscious um, or not so subconscious kind of affinity, or you could say a bias, or whatever for a fighter. If an announcer keeps referring to one fighter by his first name and the other fighter by his last name, (laughs) it's simple. (laughs) I mean, when I hear that, 
then I know that whether they it's subconscious and they don't really know they're doing it or whether it is conscious, that they are leaning toward that fighter and that their that well, fighter is more in their mind. Now, Al, I'm going to have to disagree. I, I was looking back and I saw you calling the Harlem Globetrotters against the Washington Generals. Yeah, that's true. And you were all over the Globetrotters. All right, I have you know to what? Say. I didn't. I was a little more. I was a little more prone to being pro Globetrotter. All right, I got. I got to give you that one. Yeah, but okay. red. But I do like red clots of the. Uh... <laughs> now that that reference I just made is so dated. That there's, you know, that that at least eighty percent of our audience has no idea who I'm talking about. <laughs> it's good to be of a certain age, Al. Yes, <laughs> good sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we've got some more great cu questions coming up later in the show. All right. Yeah. Well, for now, let's let's uh, take a look at some of these these uh, video clips that we've put together. Uh, as I said, you know, we we kind of value on this show uh, people that do good storytelling and uh, and. We've put together uh, some clips of some of the folks uh, that you've seen on this show. We've kind of put them in one spot where you can hear some really fascinating stories. And here's how we uh, how we did that. Well, you know, a lot of shows uh, that are about boxing uh, specialize in making news. Some of them specialize in uh, having controversy. On this show, we do make news sometimes, and once in a while, we'll have some controversial uh, exchanges. But for the most part, this show is about providing good storytelling and, I hope, insights for you. And so when I selected some moments to look back on for this show, I, I picked them out with that in mind. And let's start out with something that I think is, was a fascinating exchange between me and Lennox Lewis, the great heavyweight champion of the world. Lennox told us about his early days of meeting Mike Tyson and what that experience was about. You know, it all started obviously in 1983 at the World Junior Championships in Santo Domingo when I actually won the, the tournament and the Americans said that, hey, you didn't box the best. And I'm like, who's the best? And they said, <laughs> it's, you know, Mike Tyson, he doesn't like taking planes. His manager, custom model, doesn't like taking planes. And me and my trainer at the time, we were saying, well, who is this guy, man? We need to find out who this guy mm -hmm. is because a lot of people didn't want to spar me either. Yeah, so I'm sure. We found each other in that sense. And um, we, uh, me and my trainer, bless his soul, Arnie Beam, um, elected to drive up there. We drove up there. We met custom model. We stayed at the house. Uh, I met Mike, lovely guy. Uh, until until we got in the ring, you know that's that's when the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde came out in 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 Mike. I, you know I thought he, he first he courted me and sweeted me up and then tried to beat me up. So it it gave it gave me a lesson as well. You know it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. So I'm in his territory, so I got to be careful. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was that 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 was then. And then he went off off to do his illustrious pro career. And I was still amateurs at the time. So I was focused on amateurs. He was focused on pro. And um, I didn't know if we were going to actually meet. But what, when we were sparring at that time, uh, Custom Auto, in the last round, said, Mike, don't you do that. You're going to face this man one day. <laughs> and I'm like, that was always ringing yeah. in the back of my head. And uh, I wondered if it would ever come true. And it did. 
And speaking of Mike Tyson, uh, the man that called so many of Mike Tyson's championship matches in the early days was the great Barry Tompkins, uh, who announced those fights on HBO. And Barry had a very interesting beginning with HBO. He tells us about this story in which a couple of icons nearly came to blows. Truly, I had never heard of HBO. I didn't know what HBO was. You know, cable television was absolutely in its infancy. And out here on the left coast, there was no cable television. And uh, my very first event for them, they called me a couple of weeks after I got back and they asked me to do an event in Hawaii. Uh, and it was a gymnastics event. And then from there, it segued into the, uh, and this is kind of an interesting story too, it segued into the National Collegiate Boxing Championships. They were at the Air Force Academy. And Ray Leonard and I were the hosts. And Don Dunphy and Larry Merchant did the blow by blow in color. And they actually got into a fight and not, not far from a fist fight. Wow. During the broadcast, this, this is no joke. And I could, all Ray and I, we were way out in East Jesus, you know, somewhere. And all you could hear is the rattling of the headphones being thrown down on the counter. And I look over ringside and they're both standing up, you know, in each other's grill. And I'm thinking, oh my God, now what do we do here, you know? And as it turned out, um, that was, I, after that, I replaced Don Dumpy, who was one of my childhood heroes. I mean, yeah. I grew up just loving Don Dumpy. So yeah, Don's a great very, guy. Very bittersweet. Very bittersweet. Yeah, yeah, that had to be very weird. Very, yeah, completely. And, and as you, we both work with his son now, who's a great yeah. friend. And yeah, I mean, I, I remember, you know, many nights with the transistor radio pressed to my ears. Sure. Not don't be called fights. So he was he was God, you know. And another great voice of boxing like Barry is Jimmy Lennon Jr., the great ring announcer. He recounts to us a moment at the Greg Hagen Julio Cesar Chavez fight in which Don King got kind of emotional. Oh, that was an, a special event. The numbers range from 120 to 135,000 on that, but you, you never know. But it was, you know, purportedly the largest crowd ever to, to uh, pay for a fight. The largest attendance. Um, yeah, you know, it was it, that particular fight was a, a special moment, not only because of the size of the crowd, but the setting where, you know, we're in a soccer stadium, Estadio Azteca, and there's a moat between the ground and the stands with German shepherds and guards <laughs> in the moat, keeping the two, you know, the the the, the two separate. Um, you know, people were. I would look up into the arena and people had little fires. They were cooking their food because they'd been there since noon. And I mean, it was a, a it was a celebration like you can't believe. And, you know, I, 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 I tell this story, forgive me if you've heard it, but I, I was in the ring with Don King, right? And it was just he and I before the main event. And they had a laser light show and a music show. And it was high quality, really well done and kind of emotional music and this event was coming up and I looked at Don King and I'm telling you the truth he had like little misty eyes he was like um you know really moved by this and then later I thought maybe he was counting the crowd and the proceeds from all the the seats and realizing what he was getting and that was moving him more than anything else but um you know um it was an amazing moment uh and you know doing it in english and spanish was a little bit of a challenge and and uh you know it was it was just great but you know the bigger the crowd in the way the easier it is for me because they're excited they, they feed off the, i feed all right. of their excitement and so um it was a great experience I mean, well we continue looking back at some of the 
great stories that have been told to us here on the show. And one of them was by the brilliant broadcaster, Tim Ryan, who explained to us how he did the radio broadcast for the first Ali Frazier fight. Um, I had been doing a few fights on mutual radio and uh, Jack Price was a man who ran the broadcast division at Madison Square Garden at the time. And he tipped me off that there was an issue uh, when the Ali Frazier fight had been booked into the, uh, the at the Garden in New York, that the uh, the television rights that were owned by Jerry Parencio, who was a big cable TV guy, and Jack Kent Cook, um, uh, they went on uh, years later uh, to own a number of sports franchises and so on. That there there what they had not gotten done was to make sure that the World Heavyweight Championship radio feed was going to the Armed Forces Network, which was a tradition of many, many centuries, not centuries, decades in the U.S. And they, at the last minute, they realized that that was the case, and they had some pay-per-view um, uh, screenings at some army bases. So they kind of thought they had that covered. That created an instant controversy just a few days before the fight. Mm. So they were effect pressured by a story in the New York Times to make sure that it was the fight broadcast was delivered to the Armed Forces Network. Well, they had to set that up quickly. There were no announcers assigned. And it turned out because I had been hired at the last minute by the New Zealand radio broadcasting <laughs> network to be their announcer because they couldn't afford to send one from New Zealand right. to New York. So, and I looked up and down the, when I got there at the end of this long story, I'm sorry, but there was a row of radio announcers from all around the world, but I was the only English speaking one. And they wouldn't take the TV feed, of course, that was Don Dunphy, it's a play-by-play. And uh, so it came to me, they said, well, we need somebody to allow the feed to go to the Armed Forces Network. Uh, could we take your feed that's going to New Zealand? And they don't have any money, the Armed Forces Network. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? I wouldn't take a nickel yeah. from the Armed Forces Radio Network. I am thrilled and honored uh, to have my voice go out and call a heavyweight championship fight. So that's how it occurred, and I remember it all to this day. You make the point about the garden itself and what a spectacle it was. Uh, you know, I, I, I said there were there was every kind of person dressed in every kind of way, men and women, in that building, uh, all of the celebrities and so on. It's unmatched even now in terms of how huge that fight was. Well, if the Ali Frazier fight was iconic, which it certainly was, there was another iconic moment in boxing that my buddy Antonio Tarver was involved in. When he fought Roy Jones Jr. the second time after losing a very close decision to him the first time, when they got to the center of the ring, Antonio said to Roy Jones Jr., Roy, what's your excuse going to be this time? <laughs> Here's the genesis of how that came about. I'm going to give you another little nugget, Al. <laughs> uh, at the time, I had a great friend of mine, Charles Muniz, who was working as my manager agent. Yeah. And, and in the hotel room, Charles Muniz brought that to my attention. And it, it kind of dared me to say it. You know, <laughs> and, and, and I didn't know I was going to say it, Al, until I got in the ring at that time. But he made sure I remembered that <laughs> if I was going to say it, I better have said it then. And I don't know why I said it. It was just one of those things that I felt that at, that's what the fight meant to me. Yeah. That whatever happened after we touched these gloves, you know, whether I get knocked out, whether he get knocked out, but, but we're going to go down in history 
And I just felt that, Al. I, I just felt that it was going to be a special moment. I didn't know how it would end up. I knew that I trained to win. I trained to be successful that night. I actually trained to knock Roy Jones out because I didn't think I could win a decision. Yeah. And I think that edge, knowing I had to do more in that training camp, really pushed me, pushed me to places that I didn't even think I can reach. I think that every fan and every boxing observer was so taken with the audacity of what you did <laughs> at that moment and the way you did it with such conviction. Here's a question. Do you think it had, I mean, of course, Roy Jones Jr. is one moment is not going to turn a fight. Define but his career, you think right. he was shocked that you did it? Um, he had to be a little bit, yeah. I mean, taken aback. <laughs> I don't know how long it lasted on his mind. I don't know. That the fight didn't my, last very long. Right, right. That wasn't my intention, yeah. but I just wanted to make a statement. And uh, I think the statement was made. Well, I hope you're enjoying, as I am, looking back at uh, some of these video clips from uh, the great guests that we've had here on Al Bernstein Unplugged. And I want to remind you that we have some great guests upcoming, including Claressa Shields, the great women's boxing champion, David Benavides, former 168-pound title holder, and the great Snoop Dogg, uh, not only a terrific rapper, but also uh, a man who's very involved now in the sport uh, of boxing. Now, one of the people you've already heard from on this show, Jimmy Lennon uh, Jr., of course had a famous dad, Jimmy Lennon Sr., who was one of the great ring announcers of all time. And in this clip, Jimmy tells us about the time Mike Tyson did something very special for his dad. Yeah, it's a heartwarming story that, uh, that was very, very special. It occurred that actually the day after his second fight with Razor Ruddick, and I got a phone call and someone said, Jimmy, there's a white limousine outside of your dad's house. In there is Mike Tyson and Tommy Hurt. And they're coming to see your dad. Now, at that time, my dad was pretty sick. And he was close, close to death. And so I, I ran there. I got there. And there was Mike Tyson and Tommy Hearns at the door. And they sat down at my dad in his chair. And he was wearing a robe and not looking so great. And especially Mike Tyson was could not have been more polite and sweet and dear. And he sat lower than my father, like down on a little footstool. And he looked up at my dad and asked him questions about wrestling and boxing and just shared his heart with him. Gave my dad more months to live. And it was just an amazing, touching moment for, for my dad and, and all of us to see. And it showed the heart of Mike Tyson. He's a, a sweet man in so many ways. A heartwarming story indeed, and it kind of demonstrates that none of us are defined singularly by the one piece of information that is supposed to uh, explain us. And Mike Tyson, a more nuanced individual than some people might anticipate. Um, you know, that story was uh, emotional, but emotional in a different way is a story that Christy Martin told us. Of course, Christy is a, a, a famous woman's boxer from years gone by. She's in the Boxing Hall of Fame. And while she won titles in the ring, outside the ring, she lead, led a harrowing life. Her husband, Jim Martin, 
tortured her, tormented her, and ultimately tried to kill her. She recounts some of that terror. You know, as I went back that day, and Jim had been telling me for 20 years, if ever I left him, that he would kill me. Mm. Um, and when I went back home that day, I, I knew that that's what was going to happen. He was going to kill me. But I was to that point in my life that, number one, it really didn't matter. I was that low. It didn't matter to me if I lived or died. And, um, and you know, basically, I was ready to die. So, But also, I was never going to be that person that lived looking over my shoulder the entire time you know, waiting for him to attack me or shoot me or kill me or whatever. I just couldn't be that person. I, in my mind, I had to go that day back to my house and either live through or die with whatever he had to give out. And, and that's what happened. I mean, I, uh, by the grace of God, uh, somewhere during the middle of the attack and the attack actually lasted about 45 minutes, oh. um, the switch flipped. And, and instead of not caring if I lived or died, no, I, I told him, um, in, in very blunt words, you can't kill me. Mm. And, and I meant it as much as I meant that, you know, as much as the sun came up this morning, I meant you cannot kill me. And that, that's just the way I felt. It and, and as I said, by the grace of God, I'm still here. And, and I feel that God left me here to, to help other people that are in the same kind of circumstances that I was in for so long. So I hope you enjoyed that look back at uh, some of those uh, stories. The, the idea of Larry Merchant and Don Dunphy at ringside, uh, you know, coming to blows, as Barry Tompkins said, that one, <laughs> that one caught me, uh, uh, you know, uh, that made me slightly aghast. <laughs> Barry told me, like, he's told me that story on a number of occasions. And he said, when he looked down and saw that, he was like, okay, now I've seen everything. So that was, that was pretty crazy. Um, well, let's get to So some... we have, we have a lot of questions, do we not? We do. Well, let's get right to it. Iceman John Scully says, when are we going to force elimination of regular emeritus silver champions? Yeah, John Scully, by the way, for people that may not know, was John was a terrific amateur champion and a very good professional uh, fighter. Uh, I announced a number of his fights. He's a terrific, terrific guy. He works with, uh, also works with uh, the USA Amateur Program, the Alumni Association, uh, which I also uh, do work with, and uh, helps connect many uh, amateur fighters that uh, over the years would lose sight of each other. And, uh, and he's just a, a remarkable guy and uh, knows boxing better than just about anybody. And so his question, uh, you know, is the ultimate one. I don't know anybody other than the people that are running the boxing organizations that understand why you would want a interim champion, a champion in emeritus, a champion in recess, <laughs> uh, a silver <laughs> champion. I mean, I could go on and on and on. They, they come up with all these crazy titles and then you end up with a, you know, uh, you know, four champions in one weight division, it's ludicrous. I mean, ludicrous is the only word you can use to describe it. Now, I'll tell you what I almost understood in the old days. And being an NABF champion, which was a North American Boxing Federation champion, the reason I can understand that maybe is you, you know that's a stepping stone championship that you've won 
that tells you you're on your way to being a world champion and it's designed to be a regional kind of, you know, title that nobody's saying you're a world champion. So uh, those titles are absurd. It is one of the things that is farcical in the sport of boxing. And, uh, you know, uh, boxing is in many ways uh, the noblest of sports. And in some ways, it's the most ridiculous. And that is one of the parts that's the most ridiculous. Okay. Rick DeMichelle says, if you could see any fighter from the past 30 years go against any pre-1990 fighter, what would your matchup be? It's a great question. Uh, I think I would go, I'm going to pick Manny Pacquiao as my post-1990 fighter. Of course, he's been a tremendous champion for a couple of decades. And uh, I'm going to take the Manny Pacquiao that fought in the around the featherweight division. And that was where he had his, all his great fights with people like Marco Antonio Barrera and Juan Manuel Marquez and uh, Eric Morales. Uh, and those four created uh, what I think of as another version of the Four Kings, except at a lower weight class. They were tremendous. And I'm going to take him and send him back in time to face the great Salvador Sanchez, who was uh, a great featherweight champion in the uh, uh, late 70s, early 80s, and was a, uh, a brilliant, brilliant fighter who unfortunately passed away at the age of 23 because of a car accident. And at that point already, at age 23, he had already beaten, I think, four fighters who would go on to be in the Boxing Hall of Fame. He was undefeated. He had been in some of the most wildly exciting fights uh, that anyone has seen and was just a spectacular fighter. And I think Salvador Sanchez was going to have about another five or six or seven year run uh, in which he was going to be create a resume that would have been almost unrivaled. Now, I do believe that because of the nature of his fights, they were all action affairs and the fact that he fought such tough guys, I don't know if he would have gotten much past age 30 as a top, top, top fighter. But those seven more years would have, would have cemented a legacy that would have made him one of the greatest ever. And as it is, people think of him is one of the greatest ever. So Manny Pacquiao and Salvador Sanchez, and how would that fight go? It would be a pitched battle. Uh, and I think ultimately I would probably pick Salvador Sanchez to be to win by a split decision or a close decision. And the big question, right, Trip, would be, would you have it be 15 rounds like Salvador Sanchez used to fight? Or would you have it be 12 rounds as uh, Pacquiao fights in his era? That'd be, that'd be a key question. Yeah, and by and large, you've been in favor of of knocking fights, and it's been a long time now. But uh, you feel that twelve rounds is much better for the athletes themselves. Generally, you know, I think it's probably a more humane way to go about it. However, many of the boxers I talk to, they point out that that fifteen rounds is what separates, you know, the men from the boys. And and I've seen so many fights that would have ended up differently had it gone fifteen. But in general. Uh, probably the move to 12 rounds makes, you know, it makes sense. And uh, a question for a future show that I'm going to write in on is be very interesting. I know you're not big on lists, but to have the fighters who left well before their time and kind of a list of some of the greats 
that's careers we were not able to see because of circumstances, and that would be very interesting. Oh yeah, that's true. Fighters that well, you know, you could you could look at it, and sometimes fighters uh, their careers were cut short. Whether it's we just talked about one in which unfortunately passed away due to a car crash, and people that have had other issues that have made their careers shorter than you know we would have than they would have liked to have seen, and that we would have liked to have seen. Sure. So. Amanda writes, do any, did any commentators from your past inspire, inspire your commentating style? Interesting. You know, not so much, but not because I don't hold them in great, uh, you know, regard. It's just that I was forced to kind of make a new style of, of boxing commentating. And I'll explain what that, what I mean by that. So, you know, you have a play-by-play announcer and you have the color commentator. And uh, I started out doing color commentary on Showtime, but I came on and I wasn't a trainer. I wasn't a famous boxer. I had boxed as an amateur, but nobody knew about me boxing as an amateur. I was, in effect, a journalist who came on doing color commentary about boxing. There had been almost none to that point that had been that kind of person coming on to do color commentator in boxing. There may have been someone, but I don't know if there, no one I can think of. So what did I have to do? I had to create this way of doing it. Uh, I had to, of course, do commentary on what was happening and try and add analysis, uh, But I also had to, I thought, put in anecdotal material and informational material to show my worth. Why should anybody listen to me early on in my career? I wasn't famous. I wasn't uh, a well-known boxer. I wasn't a trainer. Uh, I had to earn their respect by talking about the fight, but I felt I had to do something more. And because of that, I kind of created what went on to be the style of other broadcasters, the the quote, the journalist slash color analyst. Larry Merchant had filled that role, uh, had started filling that role at HBO, though he didn't really do that much announcing during the fights. You know, at that point, during the actual match, he didn't do that much. Um, so I was the first one that announced all the time during during the match. So I couldn't look at Gil Clancy or Angela Dundee or uh, some of the, the fighters that had been commentators. I couldn't say I want to take my style from you because that wasn't me. Now, the place where I did uh, get influences from other announcers is when I started doing play-by-play. About three or four years into my career, I started doing play-by-play unboxing. Now, for that endeavor, I looked to the great Don Dunphy, uh, who, of course, uh, was my idol. And I also took... um, Pieces of Barry Tompkins, Sam Rosen, Sal Marciano, Steve Albert, a number of people early in my career that I worked with, and I utilized that to help me. Yeah, and just on a personal level, when I would do blow-by-blow with you, you were great prior to a fight to say, you know, brevity, get in, get out. No one's here to hear a blow-by, maybe on radio it's a different story, but when you're doing a fight blow by blow on television you're not it's not about you it's about yeah, the you, fighters yeah you have you have a couple of responsibilities you 
You're there to, to talk about the action that's going on. You're there to give some informational material to remind people during the fight who's who and, and maybe give some biographical stuff that will help them remember who they are. And then you're there to chronicle the event and guide the ship. That's what you do. And when I did play-by-play, -play, you know, I had to be very careful not to veer into being the analyst because I'd been the analyst. And so I had to constantly remind myself, okay, don't, don't add on that extra comment about why he's using that left hook so much. That's not your job on this show. That's the analyst's job. So even though you could do it, don't do it. And when, it, when you made the shift from color to play-by-play -play or blow-by-blow, -blow, as we say in boxing, was it more, did you find that people talking in your ear became more of a factor? Was it annoying? How, did, how do you react to that, the director? Uh, the uh, you know, I just think that when you do that, you, you know, when you do analysis on a show, you still are going to hear uh, the producer talking to you, but you're not getting the specific instructions like you are when you're doing play-by-play -play or, or you're hosting. And so you had to get used to the idea that they were going to be telling you all those things. And, uh, uh, and I had, uh, since I got involved with it pretty early in my career, I was able to adapt to that pretty well. So uh, I was the first, probably the first analyst on ESPN uh, that ever did play-by-play. And, uh, I, you know, I enjoyed doing it. Which do you prefer? And that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I guess I like them both equally. You know, the analyst, analyst role is what it kind of made my career. Uh, but I really love doing play-by-play. -play. I think it's fascinating. And I, I love the idea of being able to uh, paint a picture, a word picture, and, and punctuate something you know exciting that happens so I, I maybe equally you know i'll be I, I i i it's hard to pick one really over the other and if you look at all sports i can't think of any other example of a color analyst analyst who's gone over to play by play though it's happened in baseball on radio there there are a few players who become yeah. very good play by play there but are, other football basketball i can't think of not any. too many uh there have been so, a few like um uh, there have been some, uh, Frank Gifford did, uh, on football. That's right. And, Good. Yeah. uh, yep. also, um, uh, oh, the, uh, the broadcaster on, it was, we played with the Cardinals and, uh, was, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name from St. Oh, oh yeah. From St. Louis. Yeah. Um, the catcher. Yeah. Yeah. Tim McCarver and also, but also the yeah. football player from St. Louis. There, there's been some that have done that. Uh, and I think it's probably happened a little more. Uh, a little bit in recent times, but it doesn't happen that often, you know, uh, not, not too often. So yeah, I yeah. was, I was proud of that. I actually felt good about that because I thought that was a kind of a, a feather in my cap that I was able to do that. But once in a while, you know, people will be able to make the, the transition. Uh, and, uh, you know, who did it very well, Chris Marlowe, who was a volleyball, a world-class volleyball right, player yeah. who went over to do play-by-play -play in volleyball and basketball and got to Chris did a great job uh on on that so so he was an example yeah we've become a sports media podcast but when you'd mentioned Rune Arledge who was the father of so much in yeah. sports the way we see him today he got at one point he was the president of ABC Sports known throughout the world and then he got a job at as the president of ABC News and someone said what difference is it going to make and a wise scribe said, now he'll have two offices he's never in. Yeah. <laughs> I got a kick out of that.
Yeah, true. Yeah, he was he was remarkable. Uh, uh, yeah, amazing experience. Do we have any more questions left, or are we out? We have one more. We have one more, and uh, and it's about one of the guys who classic here. What are your memories? Do you have of Leon Spinks? I'm a huge wrestling fan, and I barely found out that he did a couple wrestling matches. That came from Quarantine Club. Yeah, he did. You know, Leon Spinks passed away, and um, just passed away, and. Um, uh, and Leon, a delightful man. You know, he lived out here in Las Vegas uh, in his the latter years. His wife, a uh, delightfully sweet woman. Uh, I spent a lot of time around them in recent years at different boxing events, especially with the uh, uh, Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame and other events at the International Boxing Hall of Fame and, and many other special boxing events. He was always a delight, uh, a a good guy, you know, uh, despite some of the, the problems he faced in life, uh, his attitude toward life was a great one. And uh, I covered his fight when he fought Larry Holmes. The only other, you know, he had had the win against Ali, then lost Ali. And the only other championship, uh, world championship fight he had was against Larry Holmes in Detroit. And uh, I covered that one for SportsCenter and uh, spent a lot of time with him leading up to that fight. We did a, a, a feature in which I was with their camp for several days. And uh, that, I really found him to be ingratiating and an, an in, interesting guy. And um, in, you know, he, he suffered from some health issues uh, as time went on. And, uh, and of course, sometimes people forget that he won a gold medal at the Olympic Games. You know, I, we talk about him as a professional, but winning a gold medal at the Olympic Games is a forever achievement. And he was able to do that. And of course, he became uh, the heavyweight champion after only his eighth fight as a pro. So pretty extraordinary. And I found Leon to be just a delightful, delightful man. And uh, he'll be missed. We all we all really enjoyed him. Uh, so our, our condolences to his wife and, and, uh, and, and the whole Spinks family. And I was able to cover his son Corey's fights. I announced Corey's fights against Zab Judah uh, and a number of his son's fights. So I I had a lot to do with the uh, with the Spinks family. Well, um, our friend Tommy Ankello uh, merits a mention because he is, uh, uh, of course, a great uh, boxing uh, teacher and uh, and historian in a way because a lot of the, the material that's on his world class boxing channel has to do with how fighters approach the sport and uh, uh, and so go over to world class boxing and check out Tom's. Uh, channel and you can see a lot of uh, great information there. Uh, we have some really good guests coming up. Claressa Shields is going to be our next guest and she's getting ready for a fight in March. We're still on board to have Snoop Dogg visit with us. That's going to happen any week now. Uh, we're also going to talk with David <laughs> Benavides who's got a fight coming up in March and, uh, uh, and I will next be in action on uh, television on February 20th when uh, uh, Adrian Broner uh, steps into the ring uh, in the main event. And we also have uh, um, Brazil versus Valin, a heavyweight matchup. Uh, and that should be a fun card. So um, my thanks to you, Trip, for your fine efforts, as always. 
enjoyed it. Can't uh, we get great questions? Please continue to send your questions in. And this has been fun to get through a bunch of questions. Today. Yeah, today we got to answer a lot of them. So I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. Take care.